1: Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com.
2: What if AI could help your business deliver mission-critical outcomes with speed? With IBM Consulting, your business can design, build, and scale trusted AI using Watson X, and modernize the way you work to accelerate real impact. Let's create AI that transforms your business. Learn more at
0: IBM.com consulting.
3: Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind
2: from HowStuffWorks.com.
0: Hey, welcome
1: to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is
0: Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today we are going to be revisiting a topic that came up in an episode last month. So last month on March 15th, 2018, we released a podcast on a fascinating subject that had been much requested by listeners in the past known as the Boltzmann Brain Argument. And we wanted to revisit this topic for a couple of reasons. One is that in the original version of the episode we published on March 15th, I said something that was completely wrong. Not about Boltzmann brains themselves, but about Georg Cantor and the nature of infinity as a mathematical concept. And when we became aware of this, we edited and republished the episode, so not to leave a mistaken assumption floating out there on the internet. But ever since then... I wanted to come back to the topic because I know some of you out there probably downloaded the early version of the episode with an error left in. Uh, I wanted to acknowledge my mistake, make a clear correction, and then take that as an opportunity to talk a little bit about the amazing nature of mathematical infinity on its own.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's this is one of those topics that combines both our attempt to understand consciousness and what it is, and also the the this mind-boggling concept well actually a, a number of different concepts regarding the nature of infinity yeah uh so you know it stands to reason that uh that, that, that there would be a, a few holes left to fill. That there would be room
0: to revisit it in a future episode, and here we are. Absolutely. So we're going to explore the thing that I mentioned that was wrong in the first episode, and we're going to explore a lot of the actually mind-blowing reality underlying that claim. And that's going to have to do with Cantor and the idea of uh, countable infinities and uncountable infinities. But we're also just going to have a chance to explore the idea of Boltzmann brains a little more, including a little bit of feedback from listeners on the idea and so forth. So if you never listened to the original Boltzmann Brain episode from back in March, you might want to go back and check that one out first. But I'd say it's not strictly necessary if you want to jump right in with us here. If you did listen, but you're uh, you're a little bit fuzzy on the concept because it's been a little while, don't worry. We will give you a brief refresher on the Boltzmann Brain argument.
1: Yeah. And if you're not even sure what the deal is with Infinity, uh, I'll try and roll through some of the basics there as well. But let's get back to these brains, these marvelous
0: floating space brains uh, that could destroy us all. Okay, So the standard Boltzmann brain argument, as we explored the last time, states that if you assume yourself to be a typical observer, which you should, right? Why wouldn't you assume yourself to be typical? Yeah. Well, there's a danger in assuming that you were a privileged observer. Right. Uh, In fact, by definition, if you assume yourself to be atypical, the odds are that you're wrong, right? That's the definition of what it means to be atypical. If you assume yourself as you should to be a typical observer, it is more likely that you are something like a disembodied hallucinating brain that randomly fluctuated into existence in empty space – Floating there, hallucinating your life, your memories, your current sense experience and all of that kind of stuff. It's more likely that you're one of those than that you're a normal mammalian organism that evolved on a rocky planet. This random, isolated, floating brain in space is known as the Boltzmann brain. And normal conscious organisms that exist through biochemical evolution, like we assume ourselves to be, are called in these arguments usually ordinary observers. So you've got these these two different types of beings you could be, right? And technically, you wouldn't know the difference whether you were one or the other.
1: Yeah, and if you really stop and think long and hard about either possibility – they're 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 both they both feel kind of far fetched, you know? Like they they're they're kind of equally believable and equally fantastic. Because just the, the OO uh argument here that I'm just this mammal on this rock and I'm thinking about thinking is crazy.
0: That's the core of the show. I mean, we spend most of our time on Stuff to Blow Your Mind exploring the weirdness of what it means to be a mammal that lives on a rock floating in space, Mm -hmm. even though that's what all our best science tells us we actually are. Yeah. But according to the Boltzmann brain argument, you should believe that it's more likely that you're actually a brain floating in space, hallucinating everything about your life, than that you're one of these Creatures living on a rocky planet. And the way it works is pretty simple. You look at different models of the universe and you roughly calculate how many of each type of being you'd expect to find given the model of the universe that you're looking at. Now, if you're looking at our universe, you might still think, well, how could this be a place where there are more random space brains than animals on rocky planets? After all, there are at the very least billions of ordinary observers alive today here on Earth. And there have been billions more in the past and there hopefully will be billions more in the future. And that's just Earth. I mean we could think about millions, billions of other planets out there that are full of ordinary observers too, all those aliens. And so we have evidence of at the very, very least billions of ordinary observers. And we don't have evidence of a single random brain floating in space assembled out of random particles ever existing in the history of the universe. So how could these random space brains outnumber normal evolved organisms that on the face of it doesn't seem to make any sense, right? Right. But this is where our old friend time comes in. And time, as we know, kind of messes up our ideas of probability with all kinds of things. Like if somebody tells you, well, I was drawing poker hands and I just drew five royal flushes in a row, you wouldn't believe them because that's impossible. That, that will never happen in the history of Earth. But if you also know that they had been attempting to draw hands for, I don't know, 10 to the 10 to the 10 to the 10 to the 10 years, then okay, sure.
1: Yeah, it becomes a little more believable.
0: Now, right now, our best-looking scientific model of the universe, the one that the most evidence today seems to be pointing toward, is the lambda-cold dark matter model. And this model includes everything we know about the past and present. So it's got the idea that our local universe is about 13.8 billion years old, that it began in an incredibly hot, dense state. And then for about uh, the past 13.8 billion years, it's been expanding and cooling And if we look at what this universe is doing and what it's made of right now, we can actually make pretty decent predictions about what it's going to do in the future. And it appears that what the universe will do in the future is that it will continue to do what it's doing. It will expand and cool and entropy will steadily increase, meaning that Order is going to tend to disorder and specialness and uniqueness will tend to unspecialness and equilibrium and energy that can be used to do work will turn into useless ambient heat that can't do anything. And stars are going to use up their fuel and burn out and they'll collapse into black holes and black holes eventually themselves will dissipate due to Hawking radiation and everything will just run down and cool and even out until the universe eventually becomes a vast, undifferentiated, cold grave of thermal energy. No stars, no planets, no animals, and no ordinary observers going on into the future for more time than you can imagine.
1: And that sounds like a a, a grim outcome for things. But we're, again, we're talking about uh, very v- vast uh, uh, measurements of time. Here.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, you don't personally really need to worry about this. This yeah. is so many billions of years away that it's not going to be a problem for you. Yeah, it's more of a, a
1: blow to uh, one's sort of loose worldview than it is uh, a, a, an actual existential threat to you specifically.
0: Yes, but I would guess more worldviews are actually compatible with this model of things than you would guess at first blush. Well, I mean,
1: I guess it, it, it certainly lines up with Ragnarok, but uh.
0: – Sure. But also, I mean, uh, people it, – it can feel kind of depressing when people say like, oh, you mean like human civilization can't exist forever? At some point, all the usable energy would run out and, mm-hmm. and we'd have to go extinct somewhere out there in the dark. Well, yeah, technically that does appear to be physically true. But on the timescales we're talking about, human civilization wouldn't be human civilization anymore. It would be some kind of thing evolved so far beyond what human civilization is now that you wouldn't recognize it at all. We would be be so pretentious by that point
1: (laughs) that uh, if we were able to to glimpse these future post-humans, we would say, oh, screw those guys often to the, the the twilight uh, uh, entropy with them.
0: Well, I mean, if existence is endless variation on change, mm-hmm. eventually one of the changes worth exploring might be the change of not existing.
1: Yeah, yeah, or or kind of uh, to to invoke uh, Ian and Banks, a uh, subliming and taking this kind of uh, uh, alternate mode of existence that uh, that that comes after you've uh, you've you've had your full shot at the imperial conquest game.
0: <laughs> I like that subliming. That's yeah. nice. It's like a chemical process, almost.
1: Yeah, the, in in his um, uh, constructed universe of the of the uh, of the culture, that's what you see these super advanced elder civilizations doing. Uh, they re, they don't destroy themselves. Uh, they reach a point where they just sublime, and they they just kind of leave everything that they've built behind.
0: Well, as more and more of our existence tends to be. Uh, t- Trending toward being less physical and being more encoded as digital information, one wonders if the ultimate transcendence is just to sort of like become a a radiation imprint on the background of the universe, yeah, I mean that's kind of a beautiful afterlife in its own, right, but anyway, back to Boltzmann brains. <laughs> Um, So what, 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 what happens when the universe just goes on and on and on like that for periods of time you can't even begin to comprehend? Well, here's where the weird statistical argument comes in that you're more likely to be a space brain than one of the kinds of creatures we're pretty sure we actually are. During all that vast time in the future, random fluctuations in this empty universe will occasionally depart from this dead equilibrium before returning to it again. Now, how will that happen? Well, uh, Sean Carroll, the physicist who's written a good bit about Boltzmann brains who we quoted in the last episode, will continue to quote today. He writes about this in his paper, Why Boltzmann Brains Are Bad, uh, just to give one example of what's going on here. So he says – Quote, there can be collisions between rare high-energy photons or gravitons which could pair-produce electrons and positrons or protons and antiprotons and so forth. And the general tendency of such pairs would be to re-annihilate rather quickly. They would annihilate each other. He writes, but occasionally the new particles will have enough momentum to travel far apart from each other. Sometimes, rarely, as should henceforth be understood – Many such collisions will happen nearby, producing enough nearby matter to assemble itself into a macroscopic object such as a brain. Now, again, that sounds – that's so improbable. So you're just saying random particles that are getting pair-produced out there in space by random events are going to collect into enough atomic matter that they would form – An object like a brain, like a specified object like that, again, that is super improbable. If you're thinking that would never happen, you're right, except your never is not including enough time. And including enough time, it actually would happen.
1: As I think we mentioned in the last episode, one is instantly reminded, of course, of the, uh, the monkeys pounding on the typewriters to produce the complete works of William Shakespeare.
0: Right. in, in given normal time, that will never happen. Mm-hmm. But given enough time, if you just stretch the T variable out to arbitrary lengths, that actually will happen. It's almost guaranteed to happen. But in fact, uh, Carroll writes that it, it doesn't really matter exactly what the process of producing brains is as long as you've got two assumptions. And these two assumptions that give us the Boltzmann brain universe are that the universe either lasts forever or lasts for an extraordinary long time, much longer than 10 to the 10 to the 66th power years. And that is a long, long time. And then the second criterion is that it undergoes random fluctuations that could potentially create conscious observers. Now, as long as those conditions are met, randomly assembled brains or conscious computers or whatever other type of conscious agent you want to imagine will eventually become more numerous in the history of the universe than normal conscious animals like us. And so Carroll points out in his paper that the lambda-cold dark matter model, the best current scientific model of the universe, looks like it fulfills exactly those criteria. Its laws of physics are going to allow random fluctuations that can randomly assemble particles into macroscopic objects like dust, like rocks, stars, planets, but also lobsters, uh, Blu-rays of Jean-Claude Van Damme movies, (laughs) uh, Christophe Lambert, even human brains. And it appears that the universe will go on existing for so long that there will be an unbelievably huge number of opportunities for random fluctuation objects like this to come into existence. And so this gives us the argument. There's going to be more time out there for random brains to symbol out of particles in the void, then there is going to be uh, opportunities for ordinary observers to exist in the time space of the universe where there's usable energy to power things like stars and planets and evolution. Our evolution window is actually extremely small compared to the whole life of the universe.
1: A lifespan that is so vast that from our finite perspective it might as well be infinite
0: and for all we know we can't prove that it's not infinite but of course the question of what it would mean for time to be infinite is i guess kind of uh that's a vexing question itself right what would that mean in reality
1: all right well let's take a quick break and when we come back we will discuss the identity of infinity
3: is getting gas at exxon burning a hole in your wallet what if i told you you can easily earn cash back while you fill up Introducing Drop, the app that turns every fill-up into a reward. With Drop, you'll earn points to get free gift cards every time you fill up your tank. Download Drop and use code DROP66 to instantly receive $5 in points to jumpstart your savings journey. Don't miss out on turning your gas expenses into something rewarding.
0: Today's episode is brought to you by Visible.
1: Start saving on wireless today at visible.com monthly rate on the visible plan for data management practices and additional terms. Visit visible.com.
4: This episode is brought to you by Navy federal credit union and Navy federal. It's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years and not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy federal credit union has all kinds of great savings and investment options like share certificates with sky high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured, not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value.
2: AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com slash strategic. That's oracle.com slash strategic. oracle.com slash strategic.
0: All right, we're back. All right, so today in the podcast, we're going to be discussing the concept of infinity and infinite sets, uh, since this is where I made an erroneous statement in the first time we covered Boltzmann Brains. The last time we were in the middle of trying to illustrate the idea that it can be proved that some infinities are larger than others because if you've got a universe going on and on in an equilibrium, how can you compare how numerous two different sets of objects within them like Boltzmann brains and ordinary observers are? If it just keeps going on, you'd want to have some way of saying, well, even though it keeps going on, one group within the universe is bigger than the other group within the universe. And so the idea here is that you look at relative frequencies, right? So here's what I said last time. I said some infinities are larger than others. And the example I gave was comparing two sets of integers. Those sets were even numbers, everything divisible by two, and numbers divisible by seven. So even though you could keep naming items in each of these sets forever – I claimed that there were more even numbers than numbers divisible by 7. And that seems quite intuitive, right? I mean, it made sense to me when I said it, and I thought I had actually read that in the past. But that turns out to be not true. Now, on a a sort of face value level, it's kind of hard to see how that's not true, right? Even numbers happen more often. If you just keep counting up the number line, you will hit even numbers more often than you hit numbers divisible by 7.
1: Yeah, I think I I, I kind of played off of this by saying well, that Connor McLeod from Highlander, if he lived forever, he's going to cut off heads and he's going to uh, use the, the bathroom, and he is going to use the bathroom more than he cuts off heads, right? Right. And so that was i it said, yeah, when I when I when I take your example and I line it up with my Highlander heavy example, it seems to. To be true.
0: In both cases, we were right until you invoke the concept of infinity. Hmm. And if you actually say this process extends infinitely, then everything gets ruined. (laughs) (laughs) Everything gets jammed up. Because believe it or not, if the process mathematically were to go on for infinite time and each set of events happens infinitely, then it's provable by something called set theory that you can show that those sets are of equal size. And that might be hard to understand, but we will explain that. It, It comes down to the work of a German mathematician named Georg Cantor that there are ways in which some infinite sets that seem like they should be of different sizes are actually the same size. And yet at the same time, there actually are different sizes of infinite sets. Those, so some infinities really are bigger than others, just not in the example that I gave of, of integers. And I guess it's more arguable when you're talking about events like what Connor McLeod does, because then you're talking about things happening in the physical world where the concept of infinity gets even even more complicated. What would it mean for events to be recurring infinitely?
1: Well, I think the problem is that by by dragging infinity into it, we're basically dragging God into the scenario, right? And (laughs) you know how God reacts to mortals uh, trying to to boss uh, it around.
0: Well, you know, Infinity has historically been a concept that's very, very wrapped up in ideas about theology and religion and the universe and the afterlife. Uh, I just mentioned Georg Cantor. I mean Georg Cantor had a lot of strange religious beliefs that kind of read to us as eccentric today, deeply wrapped up in his mathematical discoveries about the nature of infinity yeah yeah the more you look at it, the more intertwined they are. Well, I guess we should come back to Cantor in a bit and talk specifically about the the types of infinity that he dealt with, but more generally, maybe let 's look at the concept of infinity in, in cultures throughout history
1: all right yeah, so this is it 's really fascinating when you think about it because we obviously as humans, live limited lives, finite lives of finite observation uh, within a finite world. Mm-hmm. Uh, yet we advance to think beyond these limitations and in doing so envision to some degree infinity or at least to toy with the concept of something being infinite. In fact, through the use of language in particular, we used a uh, – to quote uh, our old friend Julian James. Finite set of terms that by metaphor is able to stretch out over an infinite set of circumstances.
0: Oh, I mean that's essentially the library of Babel, right? Yeah. I mean that you you have a finite set of encoding features, but those bits of code can make every statement in the world.
1: Yeah. And, and we alone of all the animals are able to, to stand in wonder and horror of infinity. You look over at your cat, your dog, you check out the, the smartest dolphin in the sea. They, they don't they don't have any concept of
0: infinity and maybe they're happier for it well i mean you might wonder if they have some kind of intuitive concept not of infinity but of the idea of recurrence yeah there are different ways of picturing something as infinite one of the things that i often think about is that If you go back into ancient times, you'll see these different ways of imagining, say, time. Mm -hmm. Even if you had the idea that there's not necessarily a beginning and end of time, though, of course, many religions have that, there are totally different ways of emphasizing how that lack of beginning and end works. Is there a boundless infinity where time stretches all the way back forever and goes all the way into the future forever? Or is there a bounded infinity where time endlessly repeats like along a loop that never stops going? You know,
1: one of our – probably the, you know, the earliest uh, ideas that gets tied up and eventually becomes infinity is that, of course, of the ocean. Yeah. And we still invoke this. Uh, you know, the old saying, you know, somebody breaks up with their – high school breaks up with his girlfriend. He's, he's – uh, he or she, they're, they're distraught about it. What's the, the nugget of wisdom that is leveled at them? Oh, well, there are always more fish in the sea. But there's a finite number of fish in the sea. Right. But there are so many fish that it's almost <laughs> a, a kind of infinity. Like there's a there's a boundlessness to it. Yeah. Um, and likewise, just the idea of the ocean itself is certainly a finite realm, but it is so vast. It is so hard, especially for for ancient peoples to comprehend, mm-hmm. that it
0: was considered
1: almost a kind of boundless realm. It was, and it was tied up in these notions of primordial chaos.
0: Well, it's one of those pseudo-effective concepts that's useful to us in mathematics in the same way that our lives are full of useful pseudo-random numbers. Like mm-hmm. people cannot actually generate truly random sequences of numbers. We talked about this in the I Ching episode. Mm-hmm. But you can generate what feel like pseudo-random numbers. You know, it's like at least seems kind of random, even if it's not truly mathematically random. And we use that kind of inference to, you know, guess things and come up with uh, random solutions to things all the time in our life. In the same way, we use pseudo-infinities as a metaphor for understanding all kinds of things. uh, uh You know, the stars in the sky or the fish in the sea, we're constantly picturing infinities that are not truly infinite. They're finite numbers of things, but they're so big they stand in for infinity, which we can't conceive. But we've tried to conceive.
1: Infinity, Uh, and and we've been doing so for hundreds and hundreds of years, for millennia. Uh, So I wanted to run through some sort of, I guess you could say, great moments in uh, infinite navel gazing. Nice uh, here, just uh, some of the, uh, just a few of the important individuals and movements. Uh, One of the uh, uh, the earliest that's uh, worth talking about uh, has to do with the uh, religion of Jainism. Oh okay. So after the decline of the Vedic religion on uh, in in on the Indian subcontinent around uh, 400 BCE two other religions rose to prominence in India. Mm-hmm. You had you have Buddhism, which we've talked about on the show before, uh, as well as Jainism. And it's uh, Jainism is really its own distinct religion. It does involve some uh uh, uh, properties and concepts that pop up in Hinduism or Buddhism, but uh, you shouldn't think of it as just a mere offshoot of Hinduism or Buddhism. Uh-huh. Uh, its name derives from the Sanskrit verb to conquer.
0: Oh, that's interesting because I tend to think of Jainism as embodying nonviolence to an incredible extent. Well, yes, but the thing you're conquering, think of
1: it in, in terms of conquering one's passions. Ah, that's where- It's it the internal of, yeah. struggle. So Jains don't hold up a tr- a traditional founder. Uh, they have a number of key teachers uh, that are called Tirthankaras or Ford makers. Mm. Uh, so, for instance, uh, there was an important one named uh, Parshvanatha, who may have lived uh, in the seventh century BCE, and he would have been uh, the twenty-third. Uh, of these Ford makers. But then the 24th and last uh, Tirthankara was a man by the name of Vardhamana and known by the title Mahavira or Great Hero. Mm. And he would have been a contemporary of the historic Buddha. It was during his lifetime... In the, the years uh, immediately to follow, some of the greatest contributions to Jain mathematics were made. Uh, and Jain philosophy is big into pondering uh, the enumeration of large numbers. They classified numbers into three categories, innumerable, innumerable, and
0: infinite. Okay.
1: In fact, Jainism recognizes five different forms of infinity. There's infinite in one and in two directions— there's uh, there's infinite in area, there's infinite everywhere, and there's infinite uh, perpetually. Huh. Infinity is also tied up in their metaphysics, uh, the metaphysics of, metaphysics of the Jain soul. There are an infinite number of souls in the universe and liberated souls or uh, siddhas, uh, which are free from the cycle of samsara. Uh, they have infinite knowledge, infinite vision, infinite power, and infinite bliss.
0: Now, I wonder what it would mean to have infinite knowledge. This is something that's always been kind of interesting to me about the idea of omniscience. It seems to me that the idea of omniscience inherently invokes uh, or involves things that appear to be contradictions in the same way that omnipotence does, right? So people classically say, oh, if you've got an omnipotent soul or an omnipotent being, could it create a rock that it itself could not lift? You know, that, that's mm-hmm. the classic one. The same thing would come through with omniscience, meaning could uh, an omniscient being with all knowledge know what it is like to not know things? Well.
1: Or would you know things? If to be complete knowledge is that maybe just a complete absence of knowledge in a way? Like you, if you try and imagine a person that is defined, but you know we have finite knowledge, finite vision, finite power, and certainly finite bliss. If you ramp all of those things up to the infinite, then do we just bleed into the fabric of reality? We vanish completely. We, I mean maybe that, that is the, that's the ultimate liberation right
0: there. Mm-hmm. Well, all of these concepts that are being uh, taken to the transcendent level of infinity here like vision, power, bliss, knowledge, they're all in a way kind of defined by the bounds of limitation. Yeah. What, what would it mean to see everything then are you even really seeing? I mean seeing is an act of like focusing yeah. and an act of perceiving. And so if it's everything, I don't know what what it would necessarily mean. What is bliss
1: if it is experienced outside of the contrast with, uh, uh, with suffering?
0: Right. Or even something that's slightly less than bliss. Yeah. <laughs> now I want to be clear. I'm not trying to like rag on Jane – Uh, metaphysics or whatever. I mean, these are kind of beliefs that appear in all kinds of religions, but I think they highlight some of the inherent qualities of contemplating the infinite that makes it seem holy and kind of mind-boggling to begin with it, it's exactly these types of contradictions that make it so attractive as an idea
1: yeah certainly and of course the the Greeks grappled with infinity as well in fact if we look back uh, to the to the uh, the ideas of Anaximander of uh, Miletus who lived uh, 610 through 546 BCE uh He's considered the uh, the earliest Greek philosopher to commit his ideas to writing. The only fragments of his work remain. And he introduced the principle of uh, the Aperon uh, or boundless. And uh, this is uh, what he would discussed as the original state of the universe. Hmm. And he's certainly describing infinity, though you can also see the clear, the clear influence of uh, the Greek uh, cosmological concept of primordial chaos here as well. Oh, yeah. And this would, be, this would be an important concept that, that uh, subsequent uh, uh, Greek philosophers would toy with as well. Uh, one of the, uh, the big names uh, is, of course, uh, Zeno of Elia, who lived 490 through 430 BCE. And he played with this concept of the Aperon. Uh, and he found that infinities breed paradoxes, uh, such as the fabulous paradox of Achilles and the tortoise. And uh, this this is a this is a fun little uh, thought experiment Mm -hmm. uh, that I think will uh, that lines up rather nicely with the Boltzmann brains uh, thought experiment because the idea here is that you have a tortoise and then you have the 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 God blessed um, hero Achilles. Mm. The tortoise says, "Hey, uh, I would like to challenge you to a foot race." And Achilles is like, "What are you doing? I'm gonna. I'm of course I'm gonna beat you. I'm Achilles." Uh, you know nothing stands uh, in my way, and i 'm certainly going to outrun a tortoise and The tortoise says, "Well, uh, I, I would need a head start, of course, because I am a tortoise, and you are achilles but i 'll still beat you if you just give me a reasonable head start and they agree on a you know head start, something to the effect of like ten feet or so right it 's nothing crazy and Achilles is like well i 'm still going to beat you i, I don 't understand and the tortoise explains, Well, think of it this way you 're going to have to catch up with me before you pass me. And Achilles says, sure, yeah, I'm going to I'm gonna have to run to where you start. And then the tortoise says, but by the time you reach my starting point, I'll be ahead of you. And, uh, and then you're going to have to catch up with where I've gotten to. And, uh, and he keeps you know, carrying this out uh, uh, one step further, one step further, until he convinces Achilles that he can never catch up with the tortoise. <laughs> and Achilles just concedes the whole race and the tortoise wins.
0: I remember reading about this paradox when I was younger and I, I, I love stuff like this. It always like – I mean it seemed right. It's one of those things that seems very true in the same way that it certainly seems like there must be more even numbers than there are, uh, than there are numbers divisible by seven, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean like, another version of this would be imagine how long it would take you to walk across a basketball court. Yeah. Well, first you have to walk halfway across it. But before you reach that, you've got to walk halfway across that distance and then halfway across that distance. So you can take something finite and if you divide it up into infinite portions, then something that is very possible seems impossible. Uh, One of the take-homes is that according to the argument made by the tortoise, movement is impossible.
0: Yeah, exactly. Now, to move the analogy over to the Boltzmann brain argument, I would say actually – If you want to say, like, the tortoise represents Boltzmann brains Mm -hmm. and Achilles represents ordinary observers, all you really have to do is say, okay, tortoise does not get a head start. They start at the same time. Uh, Achilles runs, say, uh, a thousand times faster than the tortoise. Mm -hmm. And they both start the race and they just go, except the difference is the tortoise is immortal. (laughs) (laughs) And so Achilles is going to win the early part of the race by a long shot, like – Tortoise isn't going to come close until Achilles gets really exhausted and dies.
1: I know. If, if, only, uh, if only he was full god, he might have a shot.
0: But then you've got eternity for the tortoise to just keep walking out ahead. Yeah. Uh, slow and steady, right? Right. Wins the race.
1: Uh the, the great thinkers, of course, tackled if infinity as well. Uh, Aristotle, uh, 384 to 322 uh, BCE. He considered the the Aperon as well. Um here he is in uh, physics uh, talking about the boundless. Quote, Everything has an origin or is an origin. The boundless has no origin, for then it would have a limit. Moreover, it is both unborn and immortal, being a kind of origin. For that which has become has also necessarily an end, and there is a termination to every process of destruction. Another thinker of note, uh, Thomas Aquinas came along, uh, 1225 through 1274. Uh-huh. Uh, he focused on the quality of existence rather than the quantity. Of course he did. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so he considered, you know, God uh, is, uh, is infinite in quality more so than in quantity. Uh, so he saw infinity as a mode of existence and identified a separation between mathematical uh, infinity and religious infinity. Uh, so we see a, a curious principle emerge. Uh, even an infinite God cannot create an infinite object. He talks about this at length in uh, his work, uh, Summa Theologica, uh, sort of taking both sides, like saying, all right, well, if if
0: God is infinite, then
1: X. If God is finite, then Y. But I think
0: he says that nothing except God can be infinite, right? Right. Well, that kind of point of view is going to hold some sway for a while. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, Another individual worth noting,
1: uh, Nicholas of Cusa, uh, 1401 through 1464. He argued that everything is within the infinite. The world itself must be within God. Uh, So he used mathematical examples to describe the relationship between god and the world uh, there's no circumference to god and the center is everywhere uh, this is the concept of a maximum god unlimited transcendent and also unreachable and unfathomable to a species that is defined by its finite
0: limitations well this is starting to sound kind of like the like god is the universe type belief
1: yeah uh then you have uh, spinoza it comes around uh, 632 through 1677 And he says, if God is infinite, then God is the one substance. The substance must have infinite attributes and we must be modes of this one entity. So God is not not a personal God. Uh, God and nature are one. And the highest ethic, according to Spinoza, is to live in accordance with the laws of nature, to be part of the infinite. So the idea is that we're beings of mind and body, both of which are composed of this universal substance.
0: That's an interesting idea that if – if one thinks of God as infinite, then how could there be things that weren't God? Yeah. Right? Because wouldn't God necessarily encompass those things if God had no limit and went on forever? What What could be outside of him? That would seem to suggest that there was a limit to him.
1: Yeah. Yeah. What could, what could be outside of the absolute, the maximum God?
0: Yet again, I, I feel like th- – Infinity is one of those things where you start playing with language Mm -hmm. in a way. It's kind of a game that you you start using certain words thinking you know what they mean – but when you use words like infinity or everything or forever, thinking you know what they mean, they end up kicking up conclusions that you couldn't expect because you, you contemplate them more and more deeply all the time uh, and they tend to transcend the ways you originally invoked them. Does that make any sense?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, I think the the big one is, of course, it's one thing to talk about infinity in terms of, of just pure philosophy. Uh, but then, when you start lining it up with mathematics, right, and mm-hmm. when you start bringing the the raw numbers in and crunching those numbers uh, that 's where you get into some of these uh, these real conundrums that 's where you, you you hear these arguments of someone saying well you 're talking about infinity." But you're not talking about mathematical infinity because here's what happens when you throw the numbers in. Right. And
0: this brings us back to Georg Cantor. So Georg Cantor was a, I think I mentioned this earlier, but he was a German mathematician. Uh, He was born in Russia in 1845 and he lived until 1918. And he is the main person responsible for modern set theory and the theory of what are now called transfinite numbers, which was revolutionary and very controversial in its time, but in many ways is widely accepted now and has proven extremely useful. So in writing about infinity, Cantor made use of the idea of sets. Sets are both simple in the core principle and extraordinarily complicated and powerful as a tool for mathematical reasoning. And so set theory is basically just it's a framework for grouping items into sets. So you've got some items. You could group them together and then you've got a set of items and you can treat that set as a thing. And one of the things set theory does is that it gives you a way of comparing the size of sets of things by matching the items in those sets in a one-to-one pairing-off process. And the size of a set, uh, meaning how many items it contains, is known as its cardinality. No, so I – know that's a lot of terminology. We, we want to try to avoid getting too abstract here. But basically if you think, OK, I've got a set with uh, five objects in it, my five fingers on my right hand. And then I've got another set that is, has uh, all my fingers on my left hand. Are those sets equal in size? Well, I can check. I mean obviously I can tell because I can count to five. Mm -hmm. But even if I couldn't count to five, I can check by pairing off the items in each set and seeing if they pair up in the same extent or do I have leftover items in one set that can't go with the other. Now I have five fingers on each hand. So yes, I can pair up the sets. They, They match up all right. So you would say that the cardinality or the size of both of these two sets of fingers on each hand is five and the sets are equal in size. But now let's go to the example that I I got wrong in the last Boltzmann Brain podcast. So that would be looking at the sets of all even numbers in one set and all numbers divisible by seven in the other set. Even though if we just count up the natural number line, we hit way more even numbers, the numbers divisible by seven, Cantor could show that the cardinality of these two sets is exactly the same because each item in each set can be paired one-to-one with an item from another set. So imagine you've got set A, that's even numbers, and then you've got set B, that's numbers divisible by seven. Well, let's pair off the first items in each set. You've got set A is two, set B is seven. And then the second item in each set, that set A is four, set B is 14. Here's the question. What would stop you from counting forever this way? Would you ever hit a number in set A that did not have a corresponding number in set B? Clearly you wouldn't. You can match them off until the end of time. Uh, Though actually if the end of time comes and stops you from counting more, then suddenly the even number set is much bigger. (laughs) But because, you know, there's more frequency, you hit even numbers more often. But if you grant that they're infinite and you don't have to stop and tally them up but you, you treat them as ongoing sets, then they are in fact demonstrably the same size. Okay, I'm with you. I, I'm surprised you are because that's – it's messing with my brain. I mean that seems wrong, right? There can't be – the set of even numbers and the set of numbers divisible by seven cannot be the same size. There's clearly more of one than the other. But Cantor can prove that they're the same size.
1: Well, it's because we've invoked we've invoked infinity and that changes yeah, things.
0: It messes everything mm-hmm. up. Suddenly all your intuitions go out the window and nothing makes sense anymore. Uh, our listener Jim in New Jersey who is a, a great, great – Email writer he, Oh yeah. So yeah, we've been hearing
1: from, from Jim for years. Uh
0: and Jim, especially on like mathematical, logical, computer science type type topics, uh Jim has really great emails. He sent us an excellent email uh uh gently correcting our uh my mistake in the first episode. And he had a really good analogy. He said, quote, think of this as a marathon race without a finish line. The hare will always be ahead of the tortoise, but they will always pass the same mile markers just at different times. They both cover the same distance. It's just that one racer reaches each milestone quicker. They all reach the same milestones since there are an infinite number of them and infinite time. I think that's a nice way of picturing it. Yeah. Plus we
1: got to work the tortoise in for like a third time here. I like it. How many tortoises have we done so far? Uh, Three, I guess. Because we talked about the tortoise and Achilles. Oh. And then you talked about the tortoise as Boltzmann brain. Right. And now we have proper uh, tortoise and hare uh, example.
0: So now it's tortoise as numbers divisible by seven. Yes. <laughs> whereas the hare is even numbers. Yeah. So even though the hare goes faster, they eventually go the same distance if they go forever. But this is so weird, right? Because with this type of reasoning, I don't know, you might be- begin to sense some deeply troubling implications – one thing is any infinite set of things that can be counted in order is equal in size to any other. Because if you can count them in order and it's clear what the order is, you can pair them off like this. And if you can pair them off like this, you can pair them off forever equally.
1: I mean I just keep coming back to the – idea: if you're willing to accept the albeit loose idea of something going on forever that is just going to go on uh, into infinity, mm. then you can you can buy the fact that these two sets are equal.
0: I guess so. I mean, it's cutting me, man. It's messing. <laughs>
1: uh, <laughs> well, because uh, it comes back again to the idea that we are finite beings in a finite world. That is all we've ever evolved to be, and yet we imagine things that uh, are beyond that. And so, of course, it breaks our – <laughs> our, our our normal ability to to comprehend things.
0: Yeah, well, let's keep imagining. So the implications of set theory in Cantor's work are obviously extremely profound. For example, here's one thing that feels pretty obvious: which set is bigger? All the natural numbers, and that means all the positive integers starting with zero. So all the counting numbers. You know, zero, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. What's bigger, that set or all the rational numbers, which is another way of saying anything that can be expressed as a fraction with a quotient of uh, uh, with positive integers, so like one-half or two over one or one-third, which of those sets would you think would be bigger?
1: Well, I mean, obviously it would seem to invoke the Achilles and Tortoise situation, right? You would think, well, if you just start dividing everything we've been uh, talking about up, you can just you can you can just have infinite divisions that just just uh, you know blows that number
0: uh, out of proportion. Yeah, you'd think obviously the set of rational numbers is bigger, right? That includes all the fractions. Mm-hmm. Because the set of fractions includes every natural number. Every na- everything in the first set is also in the second set. One over one, two over one, three over one. So all the natural numbers are in the set of rational numbers. But it also includes every fraction in between every natural number. So you got one half, one third, three sevenths, nine tenths. Those are all rational numbers. So there must be more rational numbers or fractions than there are natural numbers, right? Wrong yet again. Cantor used set theory to prove that these sets are of equal size. Now, you might wonder again, how could you prove that? Like, remember from a minute ago that the key to being able to show that the items in a countable infinite set uh, are equal is that you can arrange them in a countable order. You've got to be able to order it so that you can pair them off in an orderly way, making sure you're not missing anything, right? Mm-hmm. So how could you count fractions, right? You can't start with the lowest fraction and count up from there. That doesn't make any sense. You know, you, you can't say, well, I'll start with one-tenth and then go to two-tenths. Right. Because you'd have lower numbers than that. So what can you do? Well, here was a real stroke of genius. Cantor rearranged every possible fraction into an ordered table. Robert, I've put a picture of this table in, uh, in our notes for us here. So w- what are we looking at?
1: Well, I'll have to include a link to this image um, on the landing page uh, for this episode of StuffToBlowYourMind.com. But uh, for me, the first thing I think of is uh, if you ever did those charts in like PE class that show the volleyball rotation plan and you're playing <laughs> uh, like team volleyball, that's kind of, it's like imagine uh, um, a bunch of fractions got together to play some sort of strange team sport and they needed a guide to show how they're moving around.
0: Well, it is like that in terms of how you navigate. But it's incredibly orderly. So here's how the table works. It's very simple. You've got a top line and a sideline. The top line is numbers at the bottom of the fraction, right? So – and that goes up with every digit. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 – And there's a column that goes down with fractions that have that number on the bottom. Then you've got a sideline that goes down with rows that uh, are all the integers going on forever. And those integers have rows beside them where the top number in the fraction is that number. So you can actually – move through this list in a diagonal back-and-forth pattern that allows you to make sure you're counting every possible fraction there could be. So it starts with 1 over 1, then 2 over 1, then 1 over 2, then 1 over 3, then 2, 2, 3, 1, 4, 1, 3, 2, and so forth. And you actually – through this method, could make a table where it was possible to count every fraction that you would never actually get to the end, but you can organize them in a way that you know you're not leaving anything out. So it's basically
1: volleyball. Because in team volleyball, everyone moves so that everyone has to serve. During the course of the game, um, you know, unless the game ends early, but let's ignore that. Uh, this, everything must serve. Everything must be counted.
0: And that is exactly what kills its supremacy in terms of competing with the size of the set of natural numbers. Because, remember from before, if you can count them all in an order, then you can pair them off with natural numbers like 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. So believe it or not, it can be mathematically shown that the size of the set of natural numbers and the size of the set of rational numbers is the same, even though that makes absolutely no sense to us. Cantor was actually writing about this to a mathematician friend of his named Richard Diedkind. And he said about some of his own discoveries that you know this this type of stuff he was coming across. Je le vois mais je ne crois pas, which means I see it but I do not believe.
1: (laughs) All right, hold that thought, Joe. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, back to infinity.
3: Is getting gas at Chevron burning a hole in your wallet? What if I told you you can easily earn cash back while you fill up? Introducing Drop, the app that turns every fill up into a reward. With Drop. You'll earn points to get free gift cards every time you fill up your tank. Download DROP and use code DROP77 to instantly receive $5 in points to jumpstart your savings journey. Don't miss out on turning your gas expenses into something rewarding.
0: Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name.
4: Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured, not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value.
0: Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. And we're back to infinity. Now, you can use this same logic to violate your intuitions lots of other ways. There are plenty of ways to stab your brain with this. So here's an obvious one, which is bigger infinity or infinity plus one.
1: Ah, well, on the surface, it would sound like infinity plus one because it's all that plus one extra
0: dude. Exactly. I mean, you remember this from playing games as a kid, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. uh, Well, I am, you know, I am infinity strong. Well, I'm infinity plus one. (laughs) Well, I mean, it
1: gets into not to summon the specter of the infinity hotel, but that's kind of the concept there. You have a hotel with infinite rooms and then infinite guests are staying in it. What do you do when one extra guest shows up? Is there room in the hotel? Of course there is. You just have everybody move one room over and it opens up one room for the new guest.
0: And apparently that's how infinite sets work because as crazy as it is, an infinite set plus one is still the same size as a regular infinite set. So you got set A that's an infinite number of objects. Set B contains an infinite number of objects plus one extra object at the beginning. Can you still pair them off forever? Yep. Will you ever run out of items to pair off from each group? Nope. They are somehow still equal. And this is because, I mean, one of the things that's hard for us to remember is we often try to treat infinity as a number. And infinity is not a number. Infinity is a concept. You know, it's a mathematical tool but it's not a number like if you add plus one to any number it is more than that number but plus one to infinity is not more than infinity because infinity wasn't a single finite number to begin with
1: right and, and, and in explaining this to my son i don't tell him infinity is the largest number i tell him numbers go on forever and yeah. that
0: is infinity that's good parenting
1: <laughs> well i want him to have a proper uh, you know understanding of the boundless but he's not, is he? He's not going <laughs> to. Well, it, well a, a proper understanding of the boundless, that's the kind of thing you spend your whole life uh, trying to, to wrap your head around.
0: Yeah. Well, you ought to be careful. You might have a child that grows up to be a philosopher or mathematician. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. Playing with fire there.
1: <laughs> All right. So where are we with, with Cantor, though? What, what is Cantor saying at this point?
0: Well, I mean, so we're at a weird place already just with what we've talked about before, because especially when you take this and try to extrapolate it back to the more weird, less mathematical, spiritual, theological, philosophical types of ideas of infinity. Like, what does it mean to all these people who want to invoke infinity in their religion for us to discover that for some types of infinite quantities in set theory, a part of the whole is actually exactly the same size as the whole itself?
1: Yeah, it doesn't leave much room for God. I mean, I guess it leaves infinite room for God. That's the, the, <laughs> that's the, the confounding thing about
0: all of this. There you go. Uh, so uh, the other thing, though, is that Cantor also showed, it's absolutely true, that some infinite sets are bigger than other infinite sets. Now, we've just been messing everything up by violating our intuitions to show that sets that seem like they should be of different sizes, if they're infinite, are actually the same size. Now, how could it be possible that some infinite sets are bigger than others? Cantor guides us again. Let's think about real numbers versus rationals. So last time we looked at rationals, that's fractions, right? Anything that can be expressed as a normal fraction. Yes. Uh, then you've got real numbers. So real numbers include all of those numbers, but also include irrational and transcendental numbers, which are numbers that cannot be expressed as fractions, things like pi and the square root of 2. You know, you've seen people trying to calculate these out like you, you can write out many many digits of pi, 3.14 or so on forever, but you'll never get to the last decimal place of pi because it does not have a last decimal place. And if it did have a last decimal place, you would actually somehow be able to express it as a fraction. But despite the fact that it never terminates, pi is a real number. You can only write it with decimals, and there are presumably lots of numbers like this. But how many are there? You might be guessing, given what we've just been learning, that there would be a countable infinity of these types of numbers. So maybe there's the same number of numbers that are rational versus numbers that are real. But no. Cantor showed that real numbers, including irrationals, like maybe the square root of 2, cannot be arranged into a countable list, including all of the infinite possibilities. If you tried to make such a list, Cantor showed that you can always point out real numbers that don't appear on the list. So how would you show that? Well, for a simplified version – and this is a a kind of dumbed-down version. Cantor was trying to do this with like binary numbers. But Mm -hmm. uh, for for a simplified version, imagine trying to make a list of all real numbers lining up their decimal values. So you've got like 1.345678910 and then 1.725, you know, like that where you line up their digits in columns. And Cantor said, whatever's in that list, I can find a number that's not already in it. And you can try to make a list like that that goes on forever. But no matter how you do it, I'll find numbers that are real numbers that aren't on the list. And the way he did this is is this genius thing where he went down the list diagonally. Now, we already had a kind of diagonal squirmy line thing through the rational numbers. But this is a straight diagonal line through all these numbers that are listed. So what he'd do is he'd take the first decimal digit of the first number, and then the second decimal digit of the second number, and then the third decimal digit of the third number, and then take each of those digits and change them into something else, and then put them in sequence to create another decimal number. Now, by definition, this number is not on your list – it can't be because you guaranteed at least one decimal place is off from every possible number on the list. So no matter what, an attempt to count real numbers fails. You can't possibly create an ordered way of listing them all. This means they're not countable infinities. There's an uncountable infinity of them. And thus you can prove that some infinities actually are bigger than, up, than others. There are more real numbers than there are rational numbers or natural numbers. Now, let's try to bring this back to a concrete example because I, I know we've, we've been in the math for a while. I apologize for that, but I, I did want to try to set that straight here. So do you want to talk about Connor McLeod?
1: Uh, sure. Yeah. How does Connor McLeod fit into all this then? I, I mean, because at this point, uh, I'm, I'm no longer sure anymore. Uh, certainly, I would think during the course of a, of a normal immortal's life, uh, he is pooping more than he is beheading. But how do we compare those two infinities now if he's living forever?
0: Well, that is a really difficult question. I am also in a a strange place with you here now because it's clear that the, the hair in this race, the one that accumulates faster, is that the Highlander goes to the bathroom more often than he beheads people. Yes. And if you just keep watching this process forever, anytime you stop to check how many times each of these things has happened, the bathroom visits will be larger and it will just keep getting relatively larger. It will go on like that unless you say it goes on forever. Now, it's hard to say exactly what it would mean to say a sequence like that goes on forever because you're talking about organisms that live in a universe that, you know, even if you call him immortal, you'd think at some point he'd run out of usable energy in the universe. It, Joe, it's,
1: it's Highlander. It, it's, with all things Highlander, it's best just not to ask too many questions about
0: it. <laughs> but we're in this weird conundrum, mm-hmm. right? Because we've discovered that if it were actually possible for this to go on forever, whatever that means for events in real time, if it were to go on forever, then he would do those th- – these different activities equally. Mm-hmm. But – I don't know that it makes any sense to say events in the physical space go on forever in the same way that, say, a list of integers in an infinite set can go on forever.
1: Yeah, I mean, it does, It comes back once again to the idea that our lives, our experience, our world is finite numbers, this thing that we have either created to Match up with the uh, with uh, the universe, or that we have uh, discovered in the fabric of the universe. These go on forever. These have true infinity.
0: Yeah, I, I think that's a really great point. But then again, what if the laws of physics don't tell you that you can ever stop counting? <laughs> <laughs> you know, what if you look at the laws of physics and you look at the universe and you say, I don't find anything that says time stops. Yeah. So what do you do then? You keep counting, I guess. You keep pooping. You keep beheading, and you just and things balance out, right? And Then that seems like you—you you gotta wonder, like, does that actually undercut the Boltzmann brain argument then? Because should, if you actually have a universe going on forever. Obviously, you have early universes where there is low entropy and you've got all these stars and planets and we're we're all – we're making aliens, you know, making all kinds of crazy organisms evolving through biological evolution and biochemistry and you've got all these ordinary observers. And then you've got this long dead period where those things die out and you're generating Boltzmann brains out in space. But if it really all goes on forever, then it kind of doesn't matter how many of those things happen – at either point, right? Because it would just keep recurring. You'd eventually get an entropy fluctuation that would take you back to something like a Big Bang and you would just like start it all over again and then this would go on forever and you cannot compare them. That's true. So I actually wrote to Sean Carroll. <laughs> to did you did you ask him, you about,
1: ask him about, about Highlander Infinity? The pooping. I about. didn't mention okay.
0: Highlander. I don't know if he would have <laughs> replied to me if I mentioned Highlander. But he he was incredibly uh, generous with his time to to respond to me. I, we really appreciate that. But yeah, he he basically uh, acknowledged this. So it, Dr. Carroll responded to exactly this kind of question and said that it's true that two countable infinities are equal to each other. He said, however, it's also true that one is five times bigger than the other (laughs) or 10 to 100 times bigger than the other. Hmm. That's how infinity works. And I think he's recognizing the problem there that like you'll have these things where frequencies are obviously very different. But if you truly extend them to infinite sets of things, then they're countably the same. So he says, quote, So comparing infinities is clearly not what you want to do (laughs) if what you care about is the relative frequencies of two kinds of events. You have two options. One, throw up your hands and say, there is no way to compare. Or two, regularize i.e. consider only a finite region of space-time so that all numbers are finite, calculate the ratio of Boltzmann brains to ordinary observers, and then take the limit as that region gets infinitely big. If you do the latter, you will generally find Boltzmann brains vastly outnumber ordinary observers. And, And this is what they do in their papers. Now, to be clear... Carroll is not saying he thinks we are Boltzmann brains. He has physical arguments and to some degree you might say philosophical arguments – … … for why we are not Boltzmann brains and we discussed those in the previous episode. And One of them was that he says, you know, assuming you are a Boltzmann brain is cognitively unstable. It doesn't make any sense because what's your reason for thinking you're a Boltzmann brain? It's like all this science and math and stuff that we only know because we think we have an accurate picture of the universe – if you were a Boltzmann brain, you'd have no reason to think you had an accurate picture of the universe and thus the method that you used for arriving at the conclusion that you're a Boltzmann brain would be totally worthless. So you're saying there's a chance. <laughs> <laughs> Do you ever think about how subversive the slogan to infinity and beyond is?
1: Yes, unfortunately. Um uh, it kept popping up uh, during preparation for this. I'm like reading oh, about really? these, like the the Jane uh, concepts of infinity, and it's just that 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 stupid catchphrase from Toy Story sounding off in the back of my head, and and it gives me nothing. It provides no insight <laughs> into what I'm uh, and what, into what I'm trying to wrap my head around, but it keeps going off like a like a malfunctioning uh, sprinkler or something.
0: <laughs> the, yeah, I. I, I can understand that. I so I'm not one of these people who had like a deep emotional experience as an adult watching a Toy Story movie because I don't think I ever saw anything after the first movie when I was a kid. But oh, you're I, good. I, well, yeah, I've heard that, but yeah. I I remember that first movie and I I didn't think about it back then, but now I'm thinking, wait, to infinity and beyond. That's infinity plus one. Yeah, maybe he's he was he was really contemplating infinity
1: on a level that uh, we just weren't prepared for.
0: To infinity and incoherence. <laughs> to infinity and stay there. Well, anyway, I guess that's going to have to wrap us up for today. I think we are, we are out of time. Unfortunately, I wanted to get to some of the emails we've gotten about Boltzmann Brains, but mm-hmm. we do not have time to address We have those finite today. time.
1: Yeah. In this podcast, we sadly do not have infinite time.
0: And I'm sure also you have finite patience for, <laughs> for, for infinity. You know, there's a fine line between things that are the most fascinating on Earth and things that really start to grate on your brain.
1: Well, it's like pulling on the tail of, a, of, an, of an infinite serpent, right? Mm-hmm. You're, you're never going to reach that point where you reach the you, – you, you find the creature's head and have a complete understanding of its anatomy. You're just going to keep tugging. And, and we you will get, get pooped on. Yeah, you, you'll probably get pooped on because you really chose the wrong end to, to tug. But, uh, I, I still think we, we managed to have a good time here. We got to discuss uh, infinity in a little more depth. We got to uh, uh, iron out uh, some of the lingering questions remaining Boltzmann brains, not all of them, because the mere concept of the Boltzmann brain is kind of meant to uh, to stir prolonged contemplation.
0: Yeah, uh, and we I do not want you to walk away with the impression today that we're advocating the belief that you are a Boltzmann brain. If you haven't heard that first episode, you should go back and listen to that where we actually talk about reasons you're not a Boltzmann brain come on
1: yeah don't uh, don't lose any sleep over it all right. Well, um, on that note, it's time for us to close out here. Uh, as always, I would like to direct you to stuff to your That's the mothership. That's where you'll find all the podcast episodes and links out to our various social media accounts. I'll ask you, too, that if you want to support the show, a great way to do it is to rate and review wherever you get this podcast.
0: Thanks so much, as always, to our excellent audio producers, Alex Williams and Tari Harrison. If you'd like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, uh, just to say hi, let us know how you're doing, how you found out about the show, to suggest a topic for the future, any of that good stuff, you can always email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com For more on this and thousands of other topics visit howstuffworks.com
3: Tired of routine Walgreens trips? Get rewarded for shopping with DROP. With DROP, you can earn free gift cards on groceries, gas, and more. Download DROP now and use code DROP55 to get $5 in points. Join DROP today.
1: You wouldn't expect to hear that we're America's third best city for beer like this one. Or home to vibes like this. And this. It might surprise you that we're top 10 for immersive art that's like. Whoa. And...